On this week's In-Depth Podcast, Jerry West, an NBA legend whose postseason record rivals the likes of Michael Jordan and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I was one of the top two players in all of America. Nicknamed Mr. Clutch, the Hall of Famer's silhouette has served as the NBA logo for decades. He played his entire 14-year career with the Los Angeles Lakers at a time when most people had no interest in the team. You actually, at one point, are literally driving through the streets with the other Lakers players trying to recruit people to come to games. We were almost like pioneers, to be honest with you. The first team on the West Coast. West spent more than 40 years with the organization, starting as a player and eventually taking over as GM. He's credited for helping build the dynasty that dominated the 1980s. Magic Johnson, what about him makes him one of the greatest leaders you've ever been around? West continues to make an impact on the sport, working as head consultant for the Golden State Warriors from 2011 to 2017, before moving over to the LA Clippers. While his contributions still garner respect across the league, his relentless pursuit of perfection and a lifelong battle with depression have proven to be major personal obstacles. There's been times in my life where I've been so low, you know, is it worth it to feel this bad all the time? But our 2015 chat begins with Wes talking about his type A personality, management strategies, and trusting his gut. You've called yourself the master of indirection. Um, <laughs> in what ways? Oh my gosh. It's like, <laughs> I guess probably, you know, I am a creature of habit, okay? If there is a wreck on a freeway and it's going to take two hours to get there and say it was game day, I don't care if I got there at the last minute. I was going that way. I'm really? Very, oh, I'm very superstitious, very. Um, and you, you won't travel uh, with the team on away games, right? Because no, 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 no. Well, first of all, I, think, I don't think you should. I think it's a huge distraction for a general manager to be around players and coaches all the time, and particularly coaches, because I think at times coaches would look like somebody's looking over my shoulder. When you hire someone, you hire them to do the best possible job that they can, and you're not there to critique them if they don't ask you something. Your job is to go to them and say, hey, look, um, what kind of players do you like? We'll try to get a player that will make a difference in your team. And this is something that I've believed all along. I'd rather not be caught up in asking a difficult question when, um, you know, when there's something, a bad loss occurs, a bad loss because either, you know, maybe in my mind, a coach might have made a poor decision about in a part of a game in terms of personnel on the floor, or also when, um, you know, when a player makes a crazy mistake that cost you a game, literally cost you a game, that's a time I don't think a general manager should, should ever make a comment or someone who's affiliated with the team. Don't make them when it's, high, it's so highly emotional to start with. Don't do that. You know, I had the chance to uh, talk to your wife, your longtime uh, best friend, Willie, your son, uh, Johnny, over the past several days. And what's this I hear about you needing to, like, get through everything really quick? that you have to do everything really fast? Well, you know, I think it's always been my nature. Uh, you know, everyone has a different personality, and I really have a, unfortunately, A-type personality in the sense that if I'm not moving, I'm not doing very well. And when it, you know, when it's like I read fast, um, I want to get somewhere fast, I never want to be 
not on time. Um, and it's always, I've always been like that in my life. Uh, you know, if, if I have, when I was a kid, I loved the outdoors, loved to go fishing. I couldn't wait to get there at the crack of dawn and get home after dark. And um, same with hunting, uh, the same with running. I used to love, I ran everywhere because we didn't have a car. And it's just always been part of my personality to, to if, if play golf. If it, takes, if it takes three and a half hours, I don't want to play. And um, I've always been that way. And it's something that, you know, I think is part of my DNA. And, and um, obviously, as I get older, uh, maybe it becomes even more pronounced. I know you like Malcolm Gladwell books, and how much um, do you believe in not second-guessing your first impulse and trusting your gut? Well, to me, um, he is a writer that I really connect with, and, um, and, and one of his books, he talks really about people who make decisions very quickly, and to me it's about processing information. Um, I know what I like, and I pretty much know what I don't like. Uh, I know what kind of players I like. I know what kind of players that I would prefer to have on our team. And uh, these are the things that have driven me in my basketball career. Even as a player, I knew the kind of players I liked to play with. And because you don't always get to play with those players because of the draft and personnel that's been there, if you come in as a rookie and say your career is moving along, um, I know the kind of players I like to play with. I like to play with players that are serious players, that go out there every night and compete every night. And I also like unselfish players. And those are the things to me that allows you to build a team and particularly build a team that's built around some solid foundation. And in NBA in particular, and also college, you're just not gonna win at a high level unless you have a balance uh, with your team. You got to be a good defensive team, and you have to be, have to be a good offensive team. Plus, you want to play with a lot of great guys. As a former NBA uh, general manager, how tough was it for you to cut or trade or release one of your players? Um, probably the one of the most incredibly down times of your life when you have to do that. If you've traded a player that's been with you a long time. Um, if you trade, have to, a coach is going to tell you who he wants. You're not going to influence that. And you're doing a coach, a coach might say, hey, go look and see the, the executive. Um, but when you do those things, um, it takes a little piece out of you, it really does, because all of these kids who come into the league, their desire is to play professional basketball at its highest level. When you're in college and you go there, and hopefully kids go there to get an education, but more importantly, to compete for your university and, and uh, develop relationships. In the NBA, it's so cold in the sense that, you know, people talk, well, this is a job. Most average people would like to have a job like this. But because of the enormous competition for a place on a roster of 13 to 15, uh, that's not very many people that are chosen to play at such a very high level. And you just know what, when you talk to these kids, it's like they're devastated. And for me, that was the most uncomfortable thing of all. I would have preferred that a coach would be in there in a meeting with me uh, instead of being there by yourself. And then the other thing you have to contend with is agents. How can you do this and how can you release him? It's hard to tell someone that your coaching staff doesn't think he's good enough to play at, the next, this, at this level. But 
the other thing that really bothers me, and I know when I left a game, I could have played effectively, um, but I didn't want to see myself just be another player. I did not. And I see players, and there's a few players in our league now are playing that, frankly, I think they should have retired. And the money is so enormous that they're not going to do that. When you were the general manager and have to release, cut, or trade a player, how would you, in some situations, reconcile your affection for the player with the need to effectively do your job? Well, one of the things that, that I always tried to do, the younger players, I wasn't really concerned about the veteran players because they'd been around, they'd been through the wars before, but younger players who, um, who don't get to play very much, say, and they, maybe their first round draft pick, they're not playing anyone at all. And on good teams, it's very unlikely that they're going to play except late in the game and when the game is out of reach for other teams to win. Um, I always go to those players and I said, look, I said, how are you going to impress your coach? I said, you're going to impress him by going to practice every day and whoever you're playing against, you have to show that player and you have more importantly, you have to prove to the coach that you can compete against him successfully. I said, that's your biggest way to make an impression on the coach. It's also uh, unfortunate that someday you might take his job and he might be a great friend of yours, but that's what this is all about. The stronger survive. And I think all sports are about that. If, if you can't compete at a high level and, and the one thing that is a killer in, in sports, when you're at your very best mentally, when you know every nuance of the game, mm -hmm. There's one thing that you don't defeat, and that's time. And you can see the deterioration of athletes uh, who want to play at the same level. I think as you go along later in your career, you have to adjust your game. You have to make. What was that like for you? Well, you know, for me, um, a new coach suggested to me, he said, instead of, you know, scoring 25 or averaging 25 or 30 a game, he said, I want you to lead the league in assists. I led the league in assists. But I think it takes the right coach and the right temperament of player to be able to subtly read the message that maybe you can't do those things as well as you used to do. But having said that, I didn't think I was a very good player then because I just felt I didn't, I didn't have the uh, physical edge that I felt I had before. And, um, but I had, in the eyes of most people um, in the league, a great, great year. I led the league in scoring and averaged almost 26 points a game. And I didn't think I was very good. But wow. I was a huge critic of myself. I, I mean, after every game, uh, it's probably why I don't sleep very well, never slept very well. I'm very critical of, of everything that I do as an executive, uh, making suggestions to ownership uh, as an executive, making decisions with, where you trade players because you think you can do better with another player. But uh, at the end of the day, I think how I judge myself, I was much too critical for me, myself, much too critical. But um, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. Uh, I believe you do everything at the highest level that you can. You push yourself. You don't retreat. You go forward. And the one thing that won't let you do that in sports is age. You uh, apparently, um, when you were playing, got so caught up in winning that you wouldn't even actually enjoy it when you did win. Um, explain why. Well, as I say, we're all wired differently. Uh, I, I 
I, th I believe in perfection. You can't have perfection almost in any sport. Um, you know, you can go out and I think one, one night in one game, and I don't remember very much about my career. I, I think I missed one field goal and no foul shots. I had 14 rebounds and 12 assists, like 40 points. And after the game, I said to myself, I can't believe I missed this driving layup. <laughs> Um, and yet you walk out and say, my God, this was almost as good as it can get, but still in my own mind, um, I, I didn't think that it was necessarily a great game because I had numbers. Um, we won, and that was the most important thing. But again, I, I analyzed everything that I did, uh, horribly critical of myself, horribly. When I was speaking to your son Johnny the other day on the phone, I mean, he just reiterated that, that, um, you know, that you are a perfectionist, that um, nothing is really ever good enough. You're never fully uh, satisfied. How true is that? Very true. And I th I, I, again, I think that's a part of the com uh, competitive nature of people. I'm always winning championships in Los Angeles, and we won a number there, and I left a team that won two more after I left that really was no changes in the team. Um, I think the thing that, that I learned was just when the season was over, how can we get better? I, I really, really believe that that's what kept me going, the desire to have a perfect team or something that could be near perfect, knowing full well that wasn't gonna happen. You wrote in your book, quote, my worst trait by far is that I expect everyone to care as much as I do about everything, and it is both terrible and unfair. Explain why you think that. Well, it is unfair because, again, as I say, when you're your own biggest critic, you're never going to be satisfied with yourself. Um, I think growing up in, in a real small community, one of the things that, um, that you see, everyone has the same, okay? No one is, some have less, and the ones that have more don't have very much. And I think it probably comes from, you know, watching people struggle to uh, feed their families, uh, to try to um, do the best they can for their children. And I know that uh, with me, uh, the, the, thing, the things that always drove me, I wanted to catch the biggest fish. I wanted to be the fastest guy in school, which I was. Uh, I wanted to be, jump, uh, to be able to jump higher than anyone in school, and I was. Um, it was just part of my, again, part of my DNA. I just, I don't believe, I think if you hold yourself at a lesser esteem, then it's not gonna work um, in getting to the top of the mountain. How much self-confidence do you have? If I make decisions, I make them and don't even question them. And I've made a lot of tough decisions in my life, a lot of criticism. And for the people who are critical, I would ask them to go back and look at the decisions we made. Did they turn out right? And for the most part, they did. What embarrasses you about receiving attention? I don't like attention. That's not who I am. Um, I'm, I'm very normal. I like the same things that the average person does. I, I like, I love people. Uh, I love interacting with people. But having said that, <clears throat> the only difference between me now and years ago is having to involve yourself with the press, have to be have to be responsible for the questions and particularly the answers you give to questions. 
Um, otherwise, I probably would like to completely disappear. Really? Uh, yeah, oh yes. What? Absolutely. Well, I'm nothing special, okay? I'm not. I did something in my life that I love to do. I never, I didn't play this game to win awards. I didn't play this game to... Um, but, but you are special and you're really accomplished. Well, in, your, because in, your, of in your, your mind. It's because of your hard work and... I like to be around people where I'm not Mr. West. I'm too old already, but I'm Jerry and I'm still the same kid that came from a small town uh, in West Virginia and have the same feeling about people. I would do anything for people if I can, anything. That's what drives me today, to try to help people, particularly young people that are looking for advice uh, and also, more importantly, trying to, uh, seem like everyone wants to get involved in prof professional sports today. And I tell them how hard it is. And uh, we have a lot of schools that offer um, degrees in sports management. That's not enough. There's a business side of it today that has changed enormously with the huge salaries that are being paid, managing um, directives from the league office about how to run a franchise, uh, being responsible to the press, uh, not thinking you're above the press because you're not. And I always had a saying that if, if or not a saying, but something I said to myself, the more someone was critical to me, if he called, I was, I always return call. If somebody calls me about something, I return their phone call. And with the more vehement people who thought we weren't doing a very good job or wanted to be a controversial writer, I would always take them, uh, take their calls, and probably a couple of them today would tell you that, you know, I'm not nearly as bad as they made me out to be. <laughs> Uh, one other quote from your book before I ask you about uh, writing it. You wrote about yourself that you're a tormented, defiant figure who carries an angry chip on his shoulder and has a hole in his heart that nothing can ultimately fill. Probably all true. Probably all true. I, um, why, why do you think that? Well, I think I've been defiant in my life and I still am because I think that's how I had to survive growing up. I had, came from a very tough background, and I think when you go in an environment like that, the person that you have to look to is you. You can't depend upon anyone else to make you feel better. Um, you have to find something inside of you that allows you to get through these tough times. Defiant is because <clears throat> what I believe in and particularly what I believe in about how you treat people, how you interact with people, um, how you interact with the press. If they ask you a very tough question, and sometimes some of them are pretty critical, um, that's okay, I don't care what you write, because I am defiant. At one time, when somebody would write something about me that was negative, it really bothered me. It really bothered me. And I said, this is stupid because of all the nice things that people have written about me, there has to be some balance in your life. And I've always felt that people that wrote the negative thing, those are the ones that somehow, some way, if it's, as a player, as an executive, we're going to prove them wrong. And I think it takes hard work. I think it takes someone who is stubborn and is not going to capitulate 
to all the criticism if you feel that you know what you're doing. What about winning gold at the Olympics makes it the single biggest thrill of your career? Oh my gosh, it was like, my God, I get a chance to represent my country. Um, and I think that was, at that point in time, there were so many things going on in the world that were political, you know, Cold War, threat of nuclear war, our relationships with Russia, um, um, you know, the things that had happened with the Korean War was over. Um, and I had a brother killed in Korea. And I'd often felt that I wish he could have seen me play, but to see me play and represent our country. But it was, at that point in time, only two players came, got up and received a gold medal for your team. As one of, great Oscar Robertson, a great friend of mine even today. We got up there and received a gold medal. And I, I know that the country was different. I know people were different. And the nationalism was, incredible in this country then. It's not, it's not that way anymore. And for an amateur team to go over there and win the gold medal, and I think we got won by an average of like 41 and a half points a game. And we didn't play our players very long. Obviously the Europeans have gotten better, but um, it was, I, I can't tell you how thrilling that was for me. It was the single greatest moment of my basketball career. The single greatest. What was so moving to you at those Olympic Games about standing there and listening to the national anthem being sung? Well, I've often I've said to people that, you know, if you're an athlete, there's something really special about winning because we glamorize winning in this country. We don't, we don't ever look in the locker room of a losing team. Um, we only see the elation of winning. But it was like, I've said to many of my friends, they, they asked me a lot of questions about that time. And I said to all of them, I said, I wish you understood what my body felt like at that time. I said, today I would like to have, have that same rush again. Uh, I felt I'd done something really significant that was part of a group that was an all amateurs that went over there and we beat the dreaded communist Russia country um, and to receive a gold medal and represent our country was truly uh, something I'll never forget but I'll never forget what my body felt like I'll never forget that only time you've ever felt that oh my gosh yes yes so you end up you know winning gold in the Olympics and obviously you uh, joined the the Lakers um, and much different time for the Los Angeles Lakers then than now because you actually at one point are literally driving through the streets with the other Lakers players trying to recruit people to come to games. Well, it was, you know, it's not, you know, now you go to games and, you know, we, we were almost like pioneers to be honest with you. The first team on the West Coast um, in Los Angeles, we had the Dodgers and the Rams who Dodgers were moved into the Coliseum, which is, you know, about a 250-foot home run. They had a big screen out there. And, and the Rams were drawing 100,000 people a game. And um, we went to a game there, uh, and they wanted to introduce us to, during the game. And we got up, and there was like a smattering of a block. <laughs> and then um, the, our front office got this um, bright idea 
of putting us in the back of trucks, okay? It was like a haywire <laughs> going through these neighborhoods and come out and see us play, okay? Come out and see us play. And I can imagine, can you imagine LeBron James or, or um, Tim Duncan? Maybe Tim Duncan would have done it. Or Kobe Bryant or some of our big stars. Can you imagine what they would have felt like? I mean, you guys were getting, what, like a, a few thousand fans out to a game? No, no, no. We, we, started out, uh, we started out, our first two games were against New York. And obviously, there's a lot of transplanted okay. New Yorkers there. First night there, I think we had like 4,800 people. Okay. And it was Friday and a Saturday night. And the next night, we had 4,200 people. And I said to myself, you know, we were a very popular team in West Virginia. Wherever we went, it was a sellout. And I said, I don't understand this at all. I said, this, you know, but you didn't, you really don't pay attention to fans. You pay, you pay attention to competition. But I said to myself, we got a long way to go. And the old sports arena, they had up right up there on, in the end zone, had a counter up there. So every time someone came through the turnstile, you know, you, you could start with one if you wanted to. And it was pretty, pretty easy to go up, <laughs> go up there and count to 4,800. <laughs> you said, hmm, maybe we're going to have a little bit more we thought. And now you go to uh, L.A. and, and um, they've had a lot of good times there, a lot of good times when I was there. Um, and you see the place jam-packed and a uh, different kind of crowd than we had then. But all of those people, the first two nights, were rooting for the Knicks. <laughs> Explain why you dislike the color green and try to avoid at all costs going to Boston. I haven't been to Boston since I stopped playing basketball. and, and um, you know, the fans were great to me back there. They really were. But I'm sure you've had opportunity in business and reason to go no, to not, No, well, I've had opportunities to go back there a number of times. But it's just something I didn't want to do. A lot of old bad memories. And, and uh, I don't hate green, okay? I, I make a joke out of it. And uh, I had great respect for the Celtics. We lost some really tough playoffs uh, against them. And uh, I thought there was two times we should have won, and we didn't win. And those are the things that you will take to your grave. Um, I'm still tormented by those losses, to be honest with you. you know, we, we, in this league, we talk about greatness of players, how many championships they win. Well, trust me, there's a lot of these great players, if they didn't play with the right people, they wouldn't win championships. And you, you need good fortune, you need great teammates, uh, you need good health, you need a great bounce here or there. And that never seemed to happen for us. And I think the two times, the one time that was really devastating for me is, is that um, we got beaten in the seventh final game on our home court, and Boston finished fourth in the East, and they, they win the NBA championship. They were not a better team than we were. They weren't. And I've had two dubious honors that I wouldn't recommend anyone have. I was the most valuable player in the, losing, uh, in the NBA finals on a losing team where we got beat by one point by California. And I was the most valuable player in a seven-game loss in a series against the Celtics. I don't know of any other player that's ever had that honor, and it's not an honor. What do you remember from that? Oh, just how stupid it was that I would receive that and I wasn't part of the winning team. It was not, didn't seem right. It was meaningless for me regardless of how I played. You mentioned you're still tormented by some of the losses. Your Lakers uh, lost six times to the uh, Boston Celtics in the, the 1960s in the finals. What was that like? Well, you know, for me, as I say, I'm very reflective. I honestly wanted to quit. 
I didn't want to, and this, I was in a prime in my career, and I, I didn't want to play anymore. It was just too painful to go through summers, and obviously the fans had started to rally around us, and I really felt we had let the city down, our fans down, but more importantly in the locker room, it was like uh, the lowest ebb that you could possibly have in your life. But, but letting the city and fans down, I mean, you were in the NBA Finals six times. Well, it doesn't make in, any difference. In a decade. Um, regardless of how I played, and for me, I did some incredible things in the playoffs, and it never seemed to be good enough. And you just said, is there, I used to say that a couple of those games in particular, I replayed them, and regardless of how I played, I always blamed myself for us losing. And that's a terrible burden to carry around with you. It's a terrible burden. And um, some people say, well, you got to let it go, let it go. Well, that's not me. I don't. But I think it did goad me into, um, go, after thinking about it, going from where I didn't want to play, and I was, again, at the height of my career, to maybe goading me into, you know, we can do better, we can do better. And at the end of the day, um, I just know that um, that's what drove me back to playing again when I really did not want to play. What was the hardest part for you in going through all of that? You know, I always said to myself, you know, the thing that I love the most has brought me the most pain. And that was the thing personally that if everyone looks, you're someone who does a great job interviewing people. But if it doesn't bring you any joy, you have to find a way to take your talent and make it so you have some joy out of it. And I could never find that. I could really never find that. And, you know, you try to have distractions um, in the off season where you can uh, be lighthearted. And I've never been a person who, I'm not a partier, uh, not much of a drinker at all, not much of a socializer. And um, I was just so immersed in a sport that I loved and that was, was, was my life that I never really got to a point where I had appreciation for um, the opportunity to play in the league and to represent a team, one team, and only one team. Um, I think that was the greatest sense of accomplishment I felt. And it was just, um, it was, we sit here and talking about it, I can almost relive those times, to be honest with you, because I, I've always shielded them very carefully and not get elaborate so much on how I really felt. Magic Johnson, uh, what about him makes him one of the greatest leaders you've ever been around? Well, you know, he played the game with a, with a flair, okay? But if you also looked who he played with, he had, you know, talk about centers, Abdul-Jabbar was incredible. He does not get enough credit for being one of the all-time great players. They needed a player, or we needed a player like him, who could do so many things. He could rebound the ball, of course, extraordinary passer, and a great leader. And, you know, to watch him, uh, have the privilege to watch him as a, what, 20-year-old kid, 19-year-old kid, and go from Michigan State to come and make the impact that he made on this Laker team. And he was like a wild card because he could do so many things. And that's why, that's today why, I think coaches, and particularly executives, uh, admire players that have um, 
they can play different positions. So if someone gets hurt, you're not hurt nearly as bad. And particularly when you're as great as he was, um, it just maybe you put him in a position where he's gonna, we're gonna be better than the player that was out. And uh, his enthusiasm, uh, you know, smile, he approachable. Um, he hasn't changed a whole lot today. He can be very critical today, and particularly the Lakers, which he shouldn't do. <laughs> but, um, um, you know, I loved him, and today he and I are still good friends, and um, I'm thrilled for his success. I was talking to your wife, Karen, uh, about this the other day. One of the more trying times with him was obviously November of 1991 when uh, everybody finds out he's HIV positive, and your wife recalls um, you coming home, going in the bathroom, and just starting to cry. How did you find out, and how did that affect well, you? You know, I knew, I knew, and I think you, I think when you are shocked, you're first shocked, okay? And then for someone at that age of his career, um, the things that were said about him, um, him being, so positive, uh, getting up in front of an audience and relaying this message to not only people in the athletic world, but throughout the world because professional basketball had become so popular. And to watch how he handled that was just an incredible thing. It's almost would be like a Monet or Rembrandt telling him, you can't paint anymore. You can't do this anymore because you, there's no way that you can move your hands. Well, here's somebody in the prime of his career who was gone. And honestly, I really felt like I didn't want to be involved anymore. Why not? Well, it was just because I felt so horrible for him. And at that point in time, it was like a death sentence. Uh, you know, no one knew what in the world was going on. There's a lot of research. And you know, he had the finest doctors, and when I see him today, I, you know, I think to myself, my God, I remember back to that day, of course he had hair then, and um, I remember back to that day and walking out of that place and just feeling so despondent that I uh, really didn't, didn't know how to react to it. And then you sit there with it and you go in the office, you don't feel the same enthusiasm, and the same enthusiasm wasn't based upon us not having as great a team. But the enthusiasm that wasn't there was because how I felt for him. Um, but, you know, once you get through that, as, as I say, I've always been competitive. And I knew if we worked hard enough, if we did the right things, that we were going to be very competitive again. Everyone had written us off. Everyone. But I think working with... Uh, our owner Jerry Buss, I said, we can do this and we will do it again. Um, but having, having lived through that, it's not something that, um, that I'll ever forget. Your uh, son and your wife, when I asked each of them what their favorite memories were from your career, both immediately said uh, the offseason in which you acquired Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal. How does that rank for you? Well. It would be like, um, I guess, a poverty-stricken family. 
wakes up one morning and all of a sudden overnight they become the wealthiest couple in the world. It was like one of the most elated periods in my life when we signed Shaquille O'Neal because I worked so hard uh, in doing that, establishing a relationship with him over the phone. Okay. And we had a great, we had just developed a great report. And what was involved with that? Well, it, was, you know, it wasn't always about basketball. It wasn't always about basketball. And, you know, I liked a kid. I liked to have fun with people. I don't take myself seriously. I never have. I couldn't do that. Uh, and even today, um, when I see him, it's like, oh, my God, here's one of my really big kids, okay? <laughs> um, but I also told our owner that night, I said, look, I think we got the best player in the draft. And what, an 18-year-old kid, actually 17. And we could not sign him to a contract for about three months because he's only 17 years old. And people always ask about that. Well, it wasn't in vogue to draft these young kids. It was not in vogue. And um, it took a lot to get him, a lot of hard work. And I remember after that was done and the draft was done, um, I had to go in the hospital for three days. I was just emotionally spent and exhausted. Because of how hard you were working to well, get just, Kobe and Shaquille? Again, I don't sleep, okay? Uh, it was one day to me, I went to see the doctor, and he said, the day after that, he said, we're going to have to put you in a hospital. And I was there for three days, and I mean, I was absolutely listless. I have no, no energy at all, and again, I've always been a high-energy person. Um, but that was the start of a, another great run for the Lakers, and and um, two of the greatest players that we've had. Um, free agency's bad. Free agency's bad when teams lose their best players. But also you feel joy when maybe you liked a player that other people didn't like as much, who was 17 years old. And that being Kobe Bryant, and when he was coming out of high school and going to enter the NBA, what about one of his uh, practices uh, that you watched made you get extra excited for him? Oh my gosh, Kobe Bryant's skill level was off the chart. And when you watched him, the thing that you said to yourself, well, he's awful loose. And um, our, our, players, our players gave him a nickname and, and I told him one day, I said, I don't like this. And they called him Showboat. And he'd dri dribble the ball between his back. You could put five people on him and he would get dribble between them all and go in and lay it up. Well, that's not the way you play basketball to win. And it was a big transition for him to get to a point where, you know, he became the player that he was and, and um, he had to change. And where we got Sha Shaquille O'Neal, who was a finished product, hadn't even touched the height of his career. How close did you and Kobe become? First two or three years were very close. As I say, I've always paid attention to younger players, and I think he in particular, my kids, drove him around um, Los Angeles, and he didn't have a car, and he's 17 years old, so it's pretty funny to think a kid that we thought was the number one pick. I thought he was the number one pick in the draft, and our staff thought he was the number one pick in the draft. And to watch, uh, watch my kids drive him around, I thought this was pretty, <laughs> I thought this was pretty funny. <laughs> Why do you think it was so difficult for Kobe and Shaquille to coexist? Good question. 
You know, I've often thought that if you watch teams, let's, let's say somebody has a great player and he's a little bit older, and you've got this young up-and-coming star, and all of a sudden that young up-and-coming star start to look at him as being the equal of the other player in terms of ability. Not in size, but ability. And I think that uh, Kobe Bryant played every game like he didn't like anyone he played against, which I loved. He didn't like fraternization, which I loved. And Shaquille was like a big teddy bear who smiled. And, and But you put him in a game where something was on the line and uh, you wouldn't want to play against Shaquille O'Neal. He was just so physical and so strong. And he was had great footwork for a guy his size. And Kobe Bryant, at his position, was like a Shaquille O'Neal. And he kind of played the game with force, too, for a young kid. And I think the combination of, um, of you know, Kobe wanting to exert himself more than he had and Shaquille being very... Um, vocal about who he was <laughs> and, and some, somewhat sometimes kidding ways and you know always some kind of a uh, new nickname for himself. <laughs> um, I think those two different personalities had to clash somewhere along the way. I didn't think they'd ever clash to the extent they did. Tell about the letter you wrote to both of them. <laughs> well not only letters but I, I just you know I tried to explain to them that um, they were so good for each other and, and they're going to have different kind of people rooting for them and I basically said to them that this is really ridiculous. I said this is about winning and winning championships which um, when you look back in your career a lot of people are going to judge you because of that um, and talk to them numerous different times. Obviously, it didn't help. <laughs> well, but it, while you were while you were there, they were both there. They were Shaquille fine. Didn't leave till after you left. But, but how much do you think the conversations or the letter uh, resonated? You know, I'm not someone to tell something something they want to hear. I'm really honest with people. I'm honest to the point that it's maybe not be good. But somebody asked me a question: Why should I be around the bush? And particularly with athletes, why should you why should you even bother to try to deceive them with talking kind to them about something that was wrong. And um, I'd like to think that I had every player, I don't care who the first player on the team and the last player on the team, I wanted them all to succeed. But when you have these kind of extraordinary talents that's starting to butt heads, it, it doesn't make for a good feeling, not only for the players, but for the coaches. And somewhere along the way, there has to be a voice of reason and to try to point out the pitfalls of, of um, them not being on the same page, not as players, but as people, was not good. You wrote about uh, Kobe in, in your book. Um, you said about him uh, that Kobe, quote, wasn't content just to beat people. He had to embarrass them, even players on his own team. What made you realize that? All you had to do was go to practice. He talked a lot of trash, particularly in practice. But his, again, his greatness as a player, um, you weren't going to really guard him. I have to laugh. I hear these commentators on the air, so-called experts, a lockdown defender. There's no lockdown defenders that can guard 
great offensive players. There's none. They can make it more difficult. But these people are so skilled offensively that they have an advantage. And then I hear knockdown shooters. If a guy makes two or three in a row, he's a knockdown shooter. I don't know what a knockdown shooter is. I look at percentages, and I know guys can shoot. So and, what would he do in practice? That well, he just you know he just he he competed in practice like he did in games. And, and in practice, I'll be honest with you, I, I I could care less about practice from the extent it was necessary. I didn't like to try to kill myself in practice because I played so many medicine games. And I mean, many times, you know, you'd be sore and tired because we played three nights in a row sometimes. Those guys never played three nights in a row. Um, I would tell Pat Riley, who was a very aggressive player, I said, Pat, go guard Goodrich, okay? I said, I'm sore t tonight. And I said, we've got a hard game tomorrow night, okay? Uh, but uh, he, he Kobe wasn't like that. He was just relentless in his pursuit of, uh, as he say, embarrassing players, whether it's his own players or not. Why do you think Shaquille O'Neal believes that he would have stayed with the Lakers had you not left? Um, I had a great relationship with our owner. And obviously that changed over the years as, um, when I left. I don't know if he's happy I left. I think he was happy when I said, I, I can't be here anymore. Um, Your owner? You know, Jerry Buss. And, um, and our relationship has changed because he wasn't in the office as much. He basically retired and worked out of his house. And when we moved down, downtown, and that was coming, and I could see the change that he was, uh, it was undergoing for him because we'd won so much. And um, I, just, I just knew that me being there wasn't the right thing to do. Uh, I, I'm going to do... I'm gonna, some people would always question decisions you make. Uh, I do what's best for me in terms of if I don't feel really wanted, if I don't feel really um, engaged like I was before, um, then I'm going to leave. I have an instinct about people, and if I'm not wanted, I know. And my instincts, I follow my instincts crazy. Malcolm Gladwell, and some of the books he's written uh, are extraordinary. And he seemed, what, blink. People make quick decisions. Um, that's me. And I make decisions that process information quickly, and I really trust my instincts. And probably for me, when I left the Lakers, it was the very best thing I did for not only myself, but for my health. And you said it was ruining every aspect of your life. At yes. that point. Yes. I couldn't stand what was going on there. I just couldn't take it anymore. I had the chance to read your book, uh, your autobiography, last week and was pleasantly surprised and really, quite frankly, shocked at just how open you, you were willing to be in the book. And I'm sure it's helped a lot of people who have been through similar situations or who are going through similar situations. But you open up in uh, your autobiography about depression, the death of your brother, physical abuse from your father. And I've been told by a couple people close to you that they thought it was really therapeutic for you, in a way, actually writing the book. To what extent do you agree with that? Well, you know, I think there's so many things hidden uh, by people today that uh, probably um, maybe they talked about a little bit more. And particularly if you have a platform, as I do sometimes. Um, I think it can 
I think it is therapeutic. I can't tell you how many letters I receive from people uh, thanking me for writing this book and talking about the same things they experienced growing up and talking about how they got through it and how I got through it. Um, I got through it because when my brother got killed, who was the closest to me in my family, um, he always encouraged me when I was little and tiny, I mean, it was tiny, skinny kid. Um, when he got killed, it was like a, a shock because no one is good, he was deeply religious, should ever get killed. And 21 years old, and, yeah, Korean War. You know, right? when I was 13 and you know, I look back on that day and, and I changed forever. I changed from being a really aggressive kid and I was a tough kid. Um, I changed forever. I changed to be deathly quiet, uh, hardly communicated with anyone. And so my best friend was me. And at that age, you know, if I'd had a friend to be able to, that maybe had ser ser similar experiences in your life, I might have had the ability to maybe uh, lessen this burden on myself um, that really became a burden um, and you know I just felt I felt useless I didn't feel wanted I almost felt like a, a person who um, was surviving and I think when he died there was probably a higher calling for me and said I, I, I'm gonna do something that's gonna make him proud. You wrote in your book and again very open in the book uh, the suicide takes courage. What made you feel that way? Well, you know, that's a hard one to talk about because, you know, you, when you get so deep in a hole and you don't really feel you have the strength to dig out of that hole or get out of the hole, um, you asked me earlier about winning a first world championship and Peggy Lee had a song, Is That All There Is? And that song really applied particularly to, because I told you I didn't really feel any elation until three days later and I said, oh my gosh, we've accomplished something. And I wasn't around any of my teammates, but just in my private thoughts. And I felt there's been times in my life where I've been so low, um, that, um, you know, is it worth it to feel this bad all the time? But I've, you know, I've had some success in dealing with that. Um, and How would you I, deal I, with it? Well, you know, I think that um, I read a lot, and I try to read a lot on people who've had extraordinary lives, um, been extraordinary leaders, and some of the battles they've gone through was the same thing. and. You know, what go to them on? Uh, more hard work, uh, more competition, and also maybe trying to find uh, a little silver lining in some of the things that you've done pretty well in your life. And again, I've never equated success. Um, a lot of people in our, our country, which I think is terrible, equate success with people who have enormous wealth. You know, I wasn't one of those players who, we didn't make very much money. Um, I guess my many ways, I think the best successes in terms of winning came, became as an executive. 
And also, I think that's when I really changed in terms of how I wanted to try to do things for younger people. I wanted to try to make a difference in people's lives. I wanted to do something to honor my brother. And um, I did a lot of those things. And I think that really helped relieve the, um, that horrible, horrible feeling that, um, that some people unfortunately act upon. In speaking to your son the other day, he, he said, you know, he knows how much you love him. Um, but he, he can't remember the last time that you actually said those words, you know, I, I love you to him. Um, and I know that's something for whatever reason that's uh, difficult for you. And I, I wonder, how much do you think your father impacted you as a father? Well, <laughs> um, another very good question. Um, I didn't like my father. Uh, I didn't respect my father. And I think these are the things that make it difficult for me to say I love you. Uh, you know, I, I hear people you know, say I love you for this, I love you for that, I love you, I love you, I love you. Um, to me it's a word that shouldn't be thrown around loosely. I think, I think my family, my wife, my children know how much I care about them. They know. And I'm not a demonstrative person. I'm not. When, when you were growing up, um, how afraid were you to go home? I didn't, I didn't go home until it was dark, unless it was raining. Why not? Well, it wasn't pleasant to be around my house. It wasn't pleasant at all. And I told you, I'm defiant. And sometimes when you're defiant, it irritates the wrong people. And obviously I irritated the wrong people sometimes. That being your dad? Yes, yes. How physically abusive a household was it? Well, you know, as I say, when you grow up in this, you know, and my father certainly wouldn't be here to talk about it, okay? And it's probably not fair to him. But um, when you grow up, when, you know, you live paycheck to paycheck, you, um, he worked, he ended up working at, uh, at the end of his work, working days. He ended up working for a coal mine, not as a coal miner. He worked for a coal mine, but he was an electrician. And, you know, he would, it was a lot of stress to get up every morning at four o'clock and get home at six o'clock. Um, you know, to even meet any financial obligations you have. Uh, there wasn't really anything in our house. And yet, you know, we didn't, no one didn't go, um, didn't starve. Uh, but, you know, I think the things that, when you have an imagination and maybe when you dream things that you want to happen, never happen, uh, it becomes, um, becomes difficult, becomes very difficult. And I know that uh, there were times I was probably, didn't want to eat the same thing for five days. Um, and I wouldn't do it, and that's when the defiance came in. I, I'm not doing it. Um, that's when the problem came. So it wasn't all him. It was it was me too. But I think he, he my father didn't have a high school education. He didn't really have an education. My father was brilliant. There, I believe you had, uh, six siblings, or one of 
Well, there were, three, there were three boys and three girls. And there were 23 years separating the oldest and youngest. You were the second youngest, and you, I think, really bared the brunt of the abuse. But how bad did it get at times? Well, I, honestly, I, I really didn't want to come home this time. I just didn't, I didn't want to be there. And yet, um, you know, I had, where did I, where did I have to go? I didn't have anywhere to go. Uh, so that's why I spent all my time in the outdoors and, and basketball, particularly after my brother was killed in Korea, it became my greatest love in life. The outdoors and the activity was yeah. kind of the escape? It was an escape, and, and probably the worst times when, uh, you know, when it was snowing back there and you really couldn't go out, it was like, almost felt trapped. Your late brother, his passing, uh, 21 years old, killed uh, in action in the Korean War. What was it like for you going back to Korea to see where he fell, having that opportunity? It's a very, it's a very, very chilling feeling. And we went to the, the area where my brother was killed, and it was like one of the most chilling experiences I've ever had in my life. The, um, the memories going back to when he said his last goodbye to us, um, to the return of his coffin with his body in it, the burial of him, all of those things came back in abundance. And I'll never forget when they, when they brought his casket home to West Virginia was in our house. Um, I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that day. It was almost like a, it was almost like a stroll down memory lane, and memory lane wasn't, wasn't very pleasant. For a while after his passing, you were still getting letters that yeah. he'd written your family, right? Well, it was because, again, you know, the mail from soldiers and, and uh, uh, my mother would get these things and obviously that was her, the apple of her eye, uh, my son David, my brother David. Um, I can see her getting his memory, uh, writ letters and I can see her reading them and I can recall tears running down her cheeks and and every once in a while she would so, show me one of them and and his encouragement to me to tell, tell Jerry to keep working on his basketball. Um, and I think probably maybe one of the biggest regrets I have in my life was him never having a chance to see me play because I think he would have thought that uh, my brother was pretty special. Did those words and the letters that he wrote have a big impact on you? Oh yes, they had an impact, um, um, and it always was about why, why him. But I'm sure every parent feels the same way that has lost someone in the war. Um, just a terrible, terrible thing for families to lose someone in the course of military action, and some of the wars that we have fought. Um, almost seemed to defy reason why we've done it. Explain your connection to Charles Manson. 
and your reaction to <laughs> that book? Oh my gosh. <clears throat> you know, he's from West Virginia also. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I had a Ferrari and again, I have no idea, but it mentioned in, his, in the book, Helter Skelter, how he followed this Ferrari on Sunset Boulevard. And this car was following me, okay? It was following, no questions, following me. But I had a lot of kids that would follow me home after a game. And um, so I thought it might, and this wasn't even a game night, okay? And it was the most weird feeling of all, of all, because these other murders had occurred that he was part of. That I often wonder, because he said he was following this white Ferrari, and in the book, Helter Skelter, okay. Uh, and um, you think it was you? I don't know, but I know one thing that he not he wasn't going to catch me in a Ferrari. <laughs> That'll do it for my interview with Jerry West. To see video clips of our time together, plus my chat with Warriors owner Joe Lacob, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating and review. The feedback is always appreciated. Thanks again for listening.